Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. This week, we'll discuss the horrible school shooting in Nashville and whether AI is getting out of control. But first, let's go to New York City, which is something that Donald Trump will be doing tomorrow, we believe, uh, as he has been indicted by the district attorney for New York, Alvin Bragg. And he will, uh, by all accounts, as far as we know, uh, be surrendering himself to officials in New York City, where he will be processed and then this case can finally begin. The other thing that we should say about this is the indictment, which about two and a half weeks ago or so, uh, former President Trump posted on Truth Social, uh, which I guess he didn't tweet it. He truthed it. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what the I expression is for that. I believe people say at Truth Social. Ah. ah truth bomb? <laughs> truth bomb. Uh, if, if they've uh, – Truth Social, if you are listening, we have marketing ideas for you. Uh, but he shared that this indictment was coming and then for two weeks it did not. Uh, it was supposed to be imminent. And it was not. And finally, on Friday, the indictment uh, is announced. But, and this is the important point, it is currently under seal. And until Trump surrenders himself, the indictment will remain under seal, which we expect to happen tomorrow. So for all of you listening to commentary about what is going on with this case and this indictment, I just want you to keep one thing in mind. Nobody has seen the indictment yet. Now, there has been a lot of reporting about what the case is likely based on, which is there's parts that we know and there's parts about which there is just speculation and very informed speculation, we should say, but still speculation. The underlying basis for this case is the money that was paid to uh, Stormy Daniels, the adult actress with whom uh, Trump had a affair, let's say, and he uh, she was paid money to be quiet about it by Michael Cohen, who was Trump's attorney, which was then reimbursed by Trump. And again, going off now the speculation about what the legal case against Donald Trump is, that he violated a misdemeanor in New York, but in the furtherance of the violation of a federal felony crime of campaign finance violations, that is the basis of the case. Now, uh, well-reputed lawyers say that this is an untested legal theory. So there is reason to wonder if a judge is going to look at this and is going to say that it is too much of a stretch and it gets dismissed in summary judgment. 
But if it's not dismissed in summary judgment and this does go to trial, I, I think we should just note that this is a going to be a trial with a jury of Donald Trump's peers in Manhattan. So I don't think it's unreasonable to think that even if this is a bit of a stretch of a case, that we could still end up seeing a conviction here. But we're now getting very far ahead of ourselves because, again, Donald Trump has still not surrendered himself and we still don't know what actually is in the indictment. The question that I want to ask and put out there is the reaction to the announcement that there has now been an indictment of a former president of the United States, which is the first time in American history that this has happened. People are arguing that this uh, turns us into a banana republic, the kind of place where for politically motivated reasons, you go after your political opponents. Does this make us a banana republic? No. Um, and we can and we can think about this through a couple of different lenses, but I think I think the the best way to look at this is historical analogs. This is indeed unprecedented in the history of the United States. Presidents have been indicted while they're in office. We call that impeachment. Um, Donald Trump was and, indicted twice. And in we should office. add this yes. that to the legacy of um, first uh, Matt Continetti pointed this out in the commentary podcast. And I will repeat it here. First man elected president of the United States without any prior government or military service. First president to be impeached twice. And now the first president to be indicted as an ex-president. If you look at, you know, let's say a place like uh, South Korea. South Korea's presidents have more often than not been indicted after their term of office uh, for various things. We don't tend to think of South Korea as a banana republic. Um, it is a very different system. It is uh, It complicates matters greatly. It complicates matters so much so that, you know, this is something that, you know, as I, as I speak across the river, we have the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Museum here in Grand Rapids. And one of the most controversial things President Ford did while he was in office was offer uh, a pardon to for, then former President Nixon um, that shielded him from any prosecution related to Watergate matters. And politically, um, we should note, probably cost him any chance of winning election in 1976, because it was not a popular move. No, it was not a popular move. President Ford had, in fact, initially wanted a statement of contrition from President Nixon, and he ended up not getting quite that. He did get a statement that uh, President Nixon believed he had mishandled the uh, Watergate matter, but not uh, any sort of acknowledgement of any sort of criminal it's behavior. A, it's a very good mistakes were made kind of. Uh, yeah. yeah. And... One of the things that weighed heavily on President Ford was how such indictments would affect the country afterwards. And in his judgment, he thought that this would be sort of deleterious to the republic for this to happen. Uh, President Nixon ended up being sort of re rehabilitated after some years in the wilderness after this. 
being invited back to the White House by the Carter administration, uh, then regularly appearing with other former presidents in the Reagan White House and and going forward until uh, his state funeral when he passed. Um, It does not seem that there is an appetite for that among at least at least uh, partisan Democrats in the United States. And there wasn't an appetite for what President Ford did among partisan Democrats and among many Republicans at the time. And there were political there was a lot of political fallout from that. Um, whether or not, you know, I don't think this makes us a banana republic, but it does not build people's strengths in our institutions. And there is a great deal of prosecutorial discretion in the American system. Um, and as a result, a lot of these things can be seen as, as politically motivated if we, if we speculate. We don't know the exact terms of the indictment now. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's too early. Um, we don't know what evidence is being presented. But it's certainly um, disconcerting, and this does not build faith in American institutions, um, whether or not um, some sort of thing like, you know, if President Biden were to offer a similar pardon to former President Trump, whether that would also compromise faith in American institutions, rule of law is an open question. But this is something that we've thought through as a country before and that and that President Ford made a very costly decision to avoid this sort of this sort of scenario in the past. Yeah, I mean, my answer is no. <clears throat> Uh, I, I agree. We, we this does not make us a banana republic. Um, that said, uh, I mean, I think of course there's political motivation. That doesn't necessarily mean the DA in particular, although maybe. Um, but to, to be fair, a Alvin, lot of people celebrating for political reasons. We should note <laughs> that Alvin Bragg is an elected official in New York. And he ostensibly campaigned on a promise to indict Donald Trump if he was elected. Okay, well, there we go. There's a political motivation. Now, to me, it's a bit like the problem of of bias in the media. People presume that if you can identify bias in a media, you can therefore dismiss it. You know, oh, the New York Times is left wing or Fox News is right wing. Therefore, we can't listen to anything. There may be things worth dismissing at you know either uh, establishment, but you need to evaluate reporting based on the handling of the facts and the presentation of that information, not a preconceived idea of where they're coming from, because everyone has biases. Elected officials have political motivations, even when they're doing their job. Um, so i I don't think this is the same thing, you know, you know, again, not to rehash everything Dan said, but you know, it's not as if there's no evidence, there's no circumstances here that might merit an indictment. There are. It doesn't mean that it's all going to pan out. You know, as you mentioned, it's going to have to go to trial. And who knows how, you know, uh, the jury might might think, and it's assuming it does go that far. Um, but we have processes in the United States. We have due process. Um, and we have this thing called the rule of law, which is very important, um, that on the one hand, Presidents and former presidents are not above the law. That's a good thing. Uh, we should want that no matter what our political motivations. Uh, but second of all, everyone is due, is, uh, has the, the 
has deserves due process, including presidents and former presidents. Um, so, you know, and, and then lastly, for those who, you know, the, even on the most cynical take uh, that this is totally politically motivated, I'm sure Donald Trump will, uh, as soon as he has access to social media at any point, will be calling it a witch hunt and so on and so forth, probably already has. Um, that seems like a pretty big political miscalculation to me. Uh, if you are someone who does not like Donald Trump, um, it's, you know, I, I think of, uh, I believe it's P.T. Barnum who said, uh, no press is bad press as long as they spell your name right. Um, Donald Trump knows that, um, and he uses that very, very well. It's one of the few things I think I, I would say he is very good at. <laughs> um, oh, yes. Uh, he, this, so putting him on trial, how long does this trial go? How many headlines are generated from this trial where his name is again in the papers, uh, giving him the spotlight? Uh, if you are someone who has political motivations for not wanting a Trump comeback, what you want is to all the cameras and microphones to be unavailable to him. Um, that, that is not is what, what's going to happen. Um, they're going to be more available to him because he will be in the news. So. You know, it may be politically motivated, but I think it's a complete if that is the case, if it's purely that, I think it's a huge miscalculation from people with that political motivation. So a couple of things. Uh, I had a conversation several years ago, I think before maybe it was even before Donald Trump was elected president uh, with a friend of mine uh, back where I grew up. Uh, who is in the real estate business. And he said one of the reasons that he liked Donald Trump is that he was you know, quite adept at uh, in, in the real estate business. And I had to tell him that I, I think you have a fundamental misunderstanding. You think Donald Trump is in your line of business in real estate. You are mistaken. He is in my line of business. He is in marketing. Uh, putting his name on buildings that are built by other people is not really real estate as much as it is licensing and marketing. Um, and you, so you are, in this case, absolutely right about everything we know about Donald Trump as, as a person and everything that we've seen over not just the last eight years, but really the entirety of the time that Donald Trump has been in the public eye is that it is geared towards attention. It's the reason that he used to call page six of the New York Post and pose as a publicity agent to talk up Donald Trump, uh, which is just one of the most hilarious things when you really think about it. I mean, just like you're worth that much money. Hire some schlub to do it for you. But no, he, he had to do it on his own. Um, you're absolutely correct, Dylan, that uh, ex-presidents, former presidents are not above the law. And in that sense, uh, I, I sympathize with the people who make the argument. Uh, this is a very kind of libertarian crowd that makes these kinds of arguments regularly. They made them about impeachment, that uh, more presidents should be impeached. They make it about indictments like this, that more former presidents should be indicted. Uh, I think both of those are mistaken viewpoints for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which is anybody who observed what happens to this country when a president goes through an impeachment uh, it, it is just not the kind of thing that I think we should desire to repeat on a regular basis, even if, as I've made this point numerous times before, I think both Barack Obama and George W. Bush 
could have been impeached for things that they did because both of them violated their constitutional oath of office. Both of them said about different pieces of legislation that legislation or executive actions in Obama's case that they could not do what they later said that they were going to do. Barack Obama in signing, uh, basically making DACA and DAPA law through executive order and President Bush, I think, in signing the campaign finance uh, finance reform act, McCain-Feingold, where he said, I think parts of this are unconstitutional, but I'm going to sign it anyway. Uh, that's a violation of your a constitutional oath of office and I think an impeachable offense. This is where the question of prudence comes in and whether it is worth – and this is exactly what Gerald R. Ford was going through in the decisions to offer a pardon to Richard Nixon. Is it worth the country going through all of this for the best possible outcome of such a circumstance? So it is absolutely correct that no, you know, once you're out of office, you are back to being a citizen and you are not above the law. But I think we also have to make the point that he's not beneath the law either. And if this is the kind of case, and again, we have not seen the actual indictment. We do not know for certain what the legal theory is that is going to be tested here. If it's not the kind of case that would be brought against you know, Joe Q. Smith from Queens, then it's not the kind of case that should be brought against Donald Trump from Queens just because he was the former president of the United States. And of course, here you add all the political context that we just talked about that Alvin Bragg essentially promised to indict Donald Trump if he was elected as the district attorney of Manhattan. So I think there is reasonable grounds to look at this as a politically motivated action. It's almost undeniable that it was a politically motivated action. And it is still the kind of thing that may end up eventually in a conviction. Uh, It doesn't make it the wise thing to do. And I think we should pay a little bit more attention to that. But uh, the other point that I think just needs to be made for everybody posturing about uh, Trump's favorite position, which is that he's a victim. Nobody denies the underlying facts of the case. Nobody denies that he had a fling with Stormy Daniels. Nobody denies that he paid money for her to not talk about it or that Michael Cohen paid money for her to not talk about it, that he then reimbursed. The facts are not in dispute. What is in dispute is whether it rises to the level of a felony and whether or not a prudent district attorney should bring a case like this. So I think the answer can simultaneously be that the people who are clutching their pearls right now over the end of the republic. And you, see, you always know that people are really serious about what they're saying when they don't say the country. They say the republic. This is going to be the end of the republic. It's just something about the verbiage that makes it really gets our, our dander up. It's not the end of the republic. It doesn't make us a banana republic. But it still may not be the smartest thing to have done. I mean, to be fair, banana republic, still a republic. It's in the name. Technically. It is in the name. How can one dispute? Even in the factory store version, banana republic is still a republic. Let's move on now to our second topic. Uh, sadly, another one of these incidents that we're talking about. And on one hand, 
I didn't want to talk about this today. Uh, the shooting at Covenant School in Nashville. Because we've discussed previous school shootings before. And I honestly don't know what more there is to say about it other than it's awful, it's evil, and frankly, it is exhausting that we're once again talking about children who are dead at the hands of some evil and demonic person who thought the way to deal with whatever problems they have in their life is to take out the lives of others on their own way out. But the reaction to it to me has been somewhat fascinating because the uh, quote-unquote narrative got compromised very quickly because the profile of the kind of person who perpetrates these crimes was not the exact same profile that we saw of this shooter in Nashville who was a transgender woman. And it has been interesting, which is just kind of a sad word to use, but I don't know another one, to watch the collectivist responses from two different sets of political ideologies where on one hand you have the typical reaction from people who are in favor of more stringent gun control uh, that looks at the profile of the kind of people who perpetrate these crimes that are typically white, male, uh, in their own language, cisgender. And this doesn't quite line up in the same way. And the reaction from that crowd has been very fascinating to me because of all of the outward demonstration of solidarity with the transgender community coming from the political left. Uh, and on one hand, whatever you think of the culture war battles over transgenderism, um, you know, that kind of collective guilt does not exist to me. The idea that anybody who identifies as transgender is in some way culpable for the actions of one individual person in Nashville it is just not true. Um, but you get the same kind of collectivism now coming from the right, who usually wants to talk about these incidents from the point of view of like there, it's an individual person who made individual choices to do something heinous and evil and demonic. And you're getting now arguments about the mental state of everybody in the transgender community as a reaction to that. And the descent into collectivist responses to this kind of thing, which is essentially a version of guilt by association onto other people. And to, again, to be fair, as I pointed out in the very beginning, this happens typically with these kinds of school shootings where it's imputed that, you know, there's something about maleness. There is something about masculinity. There is something about the profile that typically exists for this kind of school shooter being then some kind of guilt being imputed onto everybody else who comes into that same profile. It is interesting to me and sad to watch it happening in reaction from two different political sides. And again, not really helping in any way to talk about, have a meaningful conversation about what, if anything, 
can be done about this? So I actually think it's always collectivistic. So the the claim, it's just been, there's this extra culture war ingredient now because it's someone who yes. identified as trans. But every time there's a mass shooting, there are people on the right blaming the mentally ill, which to repeat once again, in any way, being mentally ill or having a mental illness does not correlate with violence, not at least in general. Maybe some specific things like anger management issues or something like that. Yes, that there, can correlate there are many with violent you know, people, substance abuse, that sort of thing. But, there are many violent people who uh, have mental illness, but there are many people with mental illness who do not act out violently in the same way. There are way. also many violent people who have never been diagnosed with anything Fair enough. and may not necessarily be diagnosable. And there are things such as they are called crimes of passion because someone in the moment does something rash and terrible. Um, that is normal people can do that if they are not spiritually, mentally mature, prepared, that sort of thing. Um, so I see that all the time, that kind of collectivist rhetoric. It's just been amped up now that there's an extra ingredient. Um, another thing um, to to throw you know, a wrench in the whole policy side, uh, these the weapons apparently were purchased legally. Um, and I, I need to confirm the details, but I believe there were staff members at the school who were armed. Um, so the idea that we just need to arm school staff or we need to have, you know, uh, some, you know, I mean, you could, I guess you could say, well, you know, these guns shouldn't have been able to be purchased legally. But, you know, <laughs> I presume it's a little different than somebody just taking a gun from someone else, as often happens, or getting on the black market or whatever. There had to be some kind of checks. Maybe people say, well, there needs to be more. Okay, fine. I don't know what anyone would have found. As far as we know, this person has no previous record of violence. Um, we could get into that. Uh, but I, as these things happen, I more and more think of uh, Russ Roberts, uh, the economist um, and host of Econ Talk, another great podcast I highly recommend. Um, he wrote an essay a few years ago where he talked about Adam Smith um, and his quote from his first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. That is the proper object of love. Um, and he has a little section in that essay on, on mass shootings um, where he says, you know, mass shootings in America are almost always done by a lonely man with a gun. Could complicate that in this case, maybe, but... I think it's still generally true statement. Uh, he says the policy debate focuses on the gun. Um, so we debate gun control, Second Amendment, mental health, um, you know, arming teachers, all this sort of stuff. Um, we debate everything except why it's come to pass that it crosses someone's mind to murder strangers for what seems to be no reason. We take that as a given and try to figure out how to make the task more difficult. How do we come to this point in American life? We focus on the gun, but we might want to focus on the lonely part. Um, and I bring that up because I don't disagree that this is an evil thing and tragic thing that has happened. Um, but it is also not so spontaneous and unexplainable. Um, very often, these are isolated, lonely people. Um, and I like where he goes with this. So he talks about, you know, in, in the past, people who struggled to integrate themselves, uh, you know, we used to lock them away or bully them. Um, we've gotten a little better at not doing that. And that's a good thing. Uh, but the bad news is uh, we basically just leave these people to fend for themselves. Uh, we're supposed to be tolerant, so we just ignore them. 
Um, we try not to think about the fact that uh, despite legislation, despite more security at schools, these tragedies keep happening. Um, none of these policies get to the underlying problem, the loss of connection and an unsatisfied longing to belong that Adam Smith understood. That challenge is not easily quantified, so it's unlikely to get anyone's attention or to be the focus of a research project. And then I, I really like this. We need to pay more attention to the people around us who are unloved and try to connect to them. I think there's even a danger here that he gets past of focusing just on the person as much as there's not enough of that. All the policy debate is about the gun. Um, but all of us have people in our lives who are lonely that we know. All of us have something we can do. It's not a policy solution. It's not political. And that's not to say that none of that stuff may or may not be helpful. Um, but I think we, if, if we feel sadness at this, if we are uh, appalled at the evil here, we also need to do some introspection and ask ourselves, who have we dismissed? Um, who do we ignore because we don't know how to deal with them? doesn't necessarily mean that you in particular are the right person to reach out, but maybe you can reach out to someone who can. Maybe you can find some way um, to offer these people the community they lack um, so that they don't feel desperate and alone. doesn't mean that it's going to stop it, um, but maybe it would be a good start. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of at this point, becoming a boilerplate <laughs> response for me. Um, but I think it needs to keep being said. Um, there's a lot of this that, yeah, it's just going to get trumped up. It's going to get, uh, sorry, wrong, bad phrase. But, you know, uh, you know, it's going to get politicized. It's going to get, uh, you know, used. People are going to write their essays, their think pieces. People always post this meme where everybody gets upset and people say this and people say that. And then everybody goes back to saying nothing. And then it happens again. And the whole cycle repeats. And Unfortunately, that's very true. So if you're sick of that cycle, do something about the lonely people in your lives. It doesn't mean that all of them are potential murderers or anything like that, but who knows? You don't know. Um, so make sure the ones that you have a connection to aren't those ones. Um, again, I know it's hard. There are reasons why people isolate themselves. Sometimes it's because they're really difficult people to deal with, but find a way to plug them in or connect them with people who can do a good job at that. Um, I think we need to start there. We need to we need to get out of the politicizing this, and we need to get into the the place of culture. Um, this is just whose responsibility is this? Uh, maybe in a tertiary extent, it is public policy. In a primary extent, it is the families and friends and other communities to which these people used to belong, do belong, should belong, and so on. It is it is neither. Uh, you know, a matter of the individual, if they could do it themselves, they wouldn't constantly be doing these desperate things, nor is it the state. The state has been trying things. Maybe we should keep trying things, but it doesn't seem to be working. Um, it is this big, big other realm of life called civil society, um, and we need to think a lot more seriously about it. You've offered your boilerplate for this. I will now once again insert mine, which is the reminder that Public policy does not fix broken souls mm -hmm. and cannot fix broken souls. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought Kevin Williamson on the Dispatch podcast put this in a, a good way, which is we – and I've become allergic to this kind of language in general about things less horrifying than school shootings. But I extremely dislike the political language 
that surrounds conversations about addressing any problem that discusses the solution. Because in almost every case, it's not a solution. It doesn't solve it for good. It addresses it. It may help make certain things better, but it's not a solution. Um, I've come to sympathize greatly with the first wave of neoconservatives and their approach to politics, which is the idea of I'm an ameliorist. Uh, my goal is to make things slightly less crappy over time. And I don't think that we can do much more than that. And in fact, I think attempts to do much more than that usually do more harm than good by making quick, radical changes. It's it's a time when we should step back and in most cases, again, I understand why people look at events like what happened in Nashville as an exception to that, but that it is very easy to destroy good things and it is very hard to create good things. Um, I think that should be a, a guide for the way that we approach public policy questions in this country. But Kevin Williamson, I thought, made a good point, which is about in these specific cases. Um, it's borrowing, I think, from Thomas Sowell, who would always ask, you know, OK, so this problem you've identified, is it even solvable? Is there something that can be done? Like if you had a magic wand to wave that would make it absolute, that would actually make it solvable. And if the answer is no, then it's not a problem. It is just something that exists, and we need to find ways of dealing with it and addressing it as best we can. But we should not talk about it in those terms. And it is sad and exhausting, and I, I sympathize deeply with the people who are so frustrated with the frequency at which these things occur, which, again, we should also note for all the things that you're going to read in the media about how this is like the 130th uh, shooting of this type in the country just – and we're only in the beginning of April. That is an inaccurate statistic. It is conflating a whole bunch of different things that are just not at all what we are talking about when we are talking about school shootings like the one that occurred in Nashville. So it doesn't help that people are inventing statistics that make this seem – uh, far more frequent than it is, but it is still too frequent. The fact that it happens that we can yeah, – we were just here several weeks ago discussing the shooting that happened at Michigan State University and we are here again discussing another one uh, is, is horrible and awful and evil and terrible and I don't have the words to fully summarize exactly what it is. Uh, and it is just frustrating beyond belief to have to embrace the idea that – there's no easy solution to this, but there is no easy solution to this. And people can do the kinds of things that you're recommending, Dylan. They can do the kinds of things that are being recommended. The resistance typically that has uh, come along to you, – you get resistance to gun control measures and you get resistance to uh, the right, which has adopted the idea of we need to deal more seriously with mental health in response to these – and in this case in particular, coming back to the, you know, the unique part of this story of this being a transgender person who committed this crime, there's a resistance to talk about it in mental health terms because – and I – for understandable reasons, I understand the left just doesn't want to say that, you know, transgender people are potentially mentally ill, um, which is a connection that if they seeded even a little bit, the right would jump all over. And it turns into this just awful political back and forth that becomes the meme that you were talking about, that we're going to scream at each other for a week and a half. Nothing happens. And we just go back to the way we were before 
until one of these incidents happens again and we repeat the cycle over and over again. So one of the great pleasures of my professional life is doing this podcast. And one of the reasons that I so enjoy doing these podcasts is we don't fall into the trap very often, although sometimes we do, of speculation. Um, Michael Crichton has a great essay, Why Speculate? Um, and what you see with all of these tragedies is they become occasions for speculation, oftentimes before the facts are in, oftentimes those facts we never know. Um, what I see this discussion turning to is this is an occasion for introspection rather than speculation. And I think that 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 the country at large would be served well if we use these occasions for that more and for speculating less. Um, this is the first time I've talked about this since it has happened with anyone. Um, oftentimes when politics come up in private conversation, I say, hey, I'm on this weekly podcast, like and subscribe, five-star reviews only. You can get your weekly dose of Dan's opinions there. Um, that's very much in line with what a friend of mine told me a long time ago when I got into this business, which is uh, you will find yourself in a lot of social situations where people know what you do and are going to want to have political conversations with you. Uh, don't do it unless you're getting paid. And I think and I think the important thing is, in addition to the reaching out, the introspecting in terms of lonely people in our lives, uh, another thing, when you have these 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 tragedies that become flashpoints for speculation for uh, partisan political points for uh, increases in polarization is to listen to those folks who might be exacerbated and to try to talk through with them on a one-to-one -one level um, their feelings about it. Why a lot of times people don't know how to react other than in strident terms because they don't feel – they feel that's what they should do. They, that's, that's the model they see in the world. It's an outrageous thing that happened and it should be met with outrage. Yeah, um, that you don't really care if you're not yelling about it. And I think if you can model the sort of introspection that Dylan is recommending and model that sort of discussion for people, um, that only not only orients them in a way in the world in which, you know, they're open to service to others in a way that they might not be. Um, it diffuses the mechanisms by which they devalue and dismiss folks that they think of as their political opponents and start thinking about them as neighbors, as friends, as fellow citizens. And that's really the way forward through these conversations. We've uh, uh, sadly arrived at, I, I agree with you, Dan, that um, this doing this podcast with you guys is uh, one of the real pleasures of my professional life and uh, highlights of my week. And I apologize to all of the listeners that I have now arrived at the point where I am going to read one of my tweets to you. Um, I, I feel a little guilty about that, but it, it actually is to the point, Dan, that you were just making. Uh, there was this video 
a few days ago going around of uh, Representative Jamal Bowman, uh, a Democrat uh, who was got into this shouting match. Oh, he was the one shouting. Thomas Massey, the Republican from Kentucky, who was uh, talking back to him, really wasn't shouting at him. But Bowman was standing in the halls of Congress uh, as people were leaving the House chamber, and he was screaming at them about their unwillingness to, well, essentially do whatever Jabal Bowman wants to do legislatively to theoretically address the kind of incident that happened in Nashville. And I don't know who the person is who I saw share the video of this, but they called it, this is leadership and truly amazing. Um, So with apologies for this, I will read what I tweeted. This isn't leadership and it isn't amazing. It's easy and accomplishes nothing. Forging consensus, if you're serious about your stated legislative aims in an environment of divided government, is leadership. But it's also hard and no one wants to do hard work So this is what we get instead. Everything is so geared towards the performative now that you're you're right, Dan. You know, it's if if you're not screaming about it, uh, you don't really care. It it is very much an outgrowth of what is a very and I use this in a very serious way and not a flippant way, a very fascist concept, which is this slogan that's existed for quite a while of if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. You can be neither of those things. Um, You can be somebody who wants to sit and be introspective about this and try to think of the things in an individual uh, set of part of their life that they can do that may make a difference, like Dylan was highlighting, of, of trying to recognize the people who are silently screaming for help and trying to help them. But we need to find a way to modulate ourselves away from doing things that make us feel good and nothing else. And there's just a lot of – there are a lot of things that our uh, people are doing in response to horrible, awful incidents like this. We cannot say that enough. It, it is, you know, t- tragic. I've always disliked using the word tragedy for incidents like this because the tragedy suggests some kind of a lack of agency, like, you know, a building collapse is a tragedy. Um, nobody was building the building with the idea that it would someday collapse like that. You know, horrible things happened. Uh, people made errors. And something like that happens. That's tragic. This is a heinous crime. And we should be serious about that. But again, we should be cognizant of the reality that just screaming about it is not going to help. And in fact, it is probably going to make things worse because I don't know the last time that you screamed at someone. Were they particularly receptive to whatever it is that you had to say? I'm going to guess no. You know, I don't remember the last time that I was uh, insulted into agreeing with somebody. And I do think that there is the possibility, and this is something that we should desire, and again, it points to the idea of just how broken our political and legislative system is, our policymaking system is, that I think there should be a willingness from the right to move on some gun control things and for the left to move on some of the uh, ideas, particularly dealing with um, mental health or hardening the targets 
that are so often the targets of these kinds of shootings um, or spending the money for armed guards at schools, which I agree is kind of icky and gross and it's something that I don't love, but I would rather accept that. Welcome to the world of trade-offs. I would rather accept that than more dead kids. But that would that would be progress to me, is both sides giving a little bit to actually try something here. But we are just absolutely – everyone has girded their loins against the idea of ceding anything to the other side because they view the other side as illegitimate. That is a much bigger problem than – is just encapsulated in this single incident, and it is going to be a hard one to evolve out of. For a final topic, Dylan, I want you to introduce it because actually it was right before, uh, and we have another piece of the story, at least of the AI general story, Uh, but I want to share with you, and we will put it in the show notes for anybody else who wishes to um, uh, also be visually accosted by what it is you shared uh, I'll, I'll let you explain it and why we're talking about so it so i i mean i i don't know all the details somebody just posted uh you know text to video ai like creation uh is now a thing so you can type in a prompt i want to see a video of x and an ai will produce a video a simulated video um that tries to approximate that so the one that was shared, uh, which uh, I'm sure I'll revisit my nightmares tonight, is just Will Smith eating spaghetti, uh, which you would think shouldn't be so scary, but it looks like Will Smith, but it's a lot of spaghetti really fast, and there are ways in which it's clearly not Will Smith. So on the one hand, the AI hasn't quite reached a level of automated deepfake yet, but it's certainly getting close. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot. We talked about the, the AI Seinfeld, uh, which is, was so funny. It was bad, except that it wasn't meant to be bad sort of thing. Um, this is a whole different level of just weirdness and craziness. Um, and I, I do think it, it does bring up uh, a bigger conversation, something that's already been worth talking about of the idea of deep fakes, um, the idea of fraudulent video. Um, we're, again, we're not quite at the point where you can just type in, I want to see you know, Dylan robbing a bank, and then you go rob a bank, but then you have this fake security uh, footage where it's me robbing the bank, and now you know, I'm in big, big trouble. Um, we're not there yet, but maybe we need to start thinking about uh, you know, what happens when we do get there. That seems to be a kind of plausible thing. Um, it's kind of Mission Impossible level of, uh, you know, you put on a rubber mask and suddenly you look exactly like me. Well, now you don't even need the rubber mask. You just need a a really good AI. Um, so I don't know, although I I don't think just, just to be clear, I don't think I'm a good target, uh, for this sort of stuff. Um, there, there are plenty of other people that would be better to frame. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just bizarre and weird and it, it, it highlights, I think, um, as much as, you know, we had, and I think still do have some good takes on, you know, a lot of this is just kind of a mirror of everything that's out there on the internet. And there are some things people are afraid of that are probably not such a big deal. Um, but this also is a good reminder that, like, I don't even know what's coming next. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and who does, really? I mean, even the people working on this, they make a good algorithm, a good program 
and it produces stuff. So they aren't necessarily going to even know what is going to be produced. It's not like it's all programmed ahead of time. Nobody sat down and said, we better make sure we include the Will Smith eating spaghetti program in case someone types in that prompt. That's not the way this works. Um, So I don't know. We're we're looking at a very weird digital future. Maybe it's a great reminder as much as I'm not a Luddite, uh, but a great reminder to like take a walk and leave your phone at home once a day or something like that. Like go outside more Turn the phone off or put it away more, close the computer, um, and make sure you are just not living online because it is getting weirder and weirder on there as if it wasn't already. Well, you're right that the people who create these kinds of things don't necessarily know what people are going to use it for to create themselves. But and this is where it intersects with uh, something that I found interesting, and yeah, I, the, the deep fake kind of attempted video that we that you shared here um, is yes, it's as horrifyingly awful as it sounds like that we've been describing it to be, and it, it absolutely is. Uh, but things like ChatGPT, I've had a chance to play around with, and uh, I'll be honest with you out there, um, I've used it to give me a start at writing marketing copy for a whole bunch of different things. It's a great use of it, it It's I think. fantastically helpful. Um, now, what it can't do is also something, though, that the creators can set, which brings in the story that I saw that I want to introduce, which is a quote here from the CEO of MidJourney, which MidJourney is, um, I don't know if it was the one used to create the video that you shared, but a lot of the AI-created images that you have seen if you're on social media. Uh, perhaps my favorite example of recently is uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have probably seen if you are online and Dan is already smiling, so I think he knows what I'm going to say. That absolutely fantastically fashionable looking coat that Pope Francis was wearing. Um, that I'll give it that was so good. I for a minute stared at that. I'm like, I legitimately do not know if this is an AI creation or if Pope Francis just has an absolutely bang in fashion sense. Um, I kind of hoped it was real. Sadly, it was not. And I'm going to give you a quote here about what can't be produced by MidJourney, even if you give it a prompt to create an image. And this is the quote from the CEO of MidJourney. Uh, but the Ural company run out of this from an article in the Washington Post, so we'll lead up to the quote. Uh, but the Ural company run out of San Francisco with only a small collection of, advertise, uh, of advisors and engineers also has unchecked authority to determine how those powers are used. It allows, for example, users to generate images of President Biden, Vladimir Putin of Russia, and other world leaders, but not China's President Xi Jinping. Quote, we just want to minimize drama, the company's founder and CEO David Holtz said uh, last year in a post on the chat service Discord. Political satire in China is pretty not okay. He added, and the ability, quote, the ability for people in China to use this tech is more important than your ability to generate satire. Um, one, I would like to suggest to Mr. Holes that maybe he could have had an AI generate a quote for him that is a little less uh, challenged in terms of its syntax than uh, political satire in China is pretty not OK. Uh Great statement. But this does, again, realize the second statement is more important. Um, The ability for people in China to use this tech is more important than your ability to generate satire. Um, I'm going to go out on a ledge and say, no, it ain't. 
it is not more important than people's ability to generate satire. Because again, these things are going to be imbued with a set of values. Whether or not people like that, they are going to be. This is the same kind of conversation. We did not discuss this topic on this podcast, but for people familiar with the story of the federal judge who got shouted down at Stanford Law School, it is a question of what kind of values is Stanford going to embrace and whether they uh, are going to hold themselves to them. Are they going to embrace one that is open and welcoming of free, free speech or not? Are the creators of MidJourney going to embrace this idea of free expression or are they not? And the answer here is clearly, they are not. There are all sorts of societies where it is uh, not okay to do certain forms of political satire. Uh, in the Russian Federation, for one, you mentioned, and yet this is not blocked. I am not certain, but you know, uh, the laws in uh, Thailand are very restrictive in terms of how you can talk about and how you can depict the king. Yet, what keeps returning when we have these conversations, when CEOs make these sort of judgments, is a very unique attitude towards China. Uh, sometimes you see this displayed towards India, and part of it is the size of those markets. Um, and this is one of the things that, you know, moral leadership is about is running a business is not merely a question of how you can access the most markets at any given time. There is a moral dimension to this, and that needs to be... Because if this is a question of simply respecting social norms, law, this sort of thing, it wouldn't always be uniquely China. It wouldn't, you know, sometimes include India thrown in, but it is a question of how, how are you going to, how is your technology going to be a service to the world? And there are a lot of challenges with this. Dylan pointed out a lot of these challenges that there is going to be an increasingly obvious moral dimension to these technologies, not only with geopolitical things, but with uh, with privacy, with all of these sorts of things that you simply don't have when you're talking about, you know, let's say you're a, you're an importer of rice, you know, um, that is that is less morally complicated than what we're approaching, and people. You know, cannot sidestep or outsource these issues to, you know, uh, frankly, tyrannical political authorities across the world. That is not a satisfactory moral answer. This is an opportunity to make a point that I make internally here at Acton on a regular basis and anybody in a position like mine who runs marketing should make, which is you first ask the question, whatever it is that you're creating, the first question that you need to ask is who is the audience for this? And the answer can never, ever, ever be this is for everyone because no product is for everyone. By nature, you need to exclude some people 
because, you know, the the car that is designed to make everyone happy in the end is going to make nobody happy. I think there's a, a whole thing I remember reading about this. Um, the more it's designed by a committee and not by designers. It's like, this has to appeal to this person, this has to appeal to this kind of person, and you end up with this jumbled mess that has absolutely no vision whatsoever, and it ends up that nobody likes it. It is not appealing enough to any of those markets for them, uh, for it to be acceptable to any of them. So Dan's point is absolutely correct. This should not just be about seeking out all the potential markets for a product. It should be about seeking the right markets for a product. And if it necessitates you violating something as obvious, like you will allow political satire to be made of certain political leaders and not other political leaders, that's a really good time to go back to what has become a bit of a theme here. Take a little bit and be a little introspective about what it is you're doing what it is you're building, and the values you're imbuing it with because you have some very serious questions that I think you need to answer uh, because the answers that we just that I just read here uh, about the ability for people in China to use this tech being more important than your ability to generate satire, I don't think is a very good answer. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, as Dan said before, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.